This is the smell of the leftover tuna fish sandwich you left in your lunchbox over the weekend in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, smell the difference? Hefty Ultra Strong has Arm & Hammer with continuous odor control, so no matter what's inside your trash. Hmm. You can stay one step ahead of Stinky. And for bigger jobs, try the superior strength of Hefty Large Black Bags. Blog Talk Radio. Mets fan Sam Maxwell, and you are here with a Mets scene podcast with Sam, Rich, and Mike. Uh, without further ado, we have a lot to discuss, so let me bring on those Rich and Mike, and we'll start with that uh, the first name, Mr. Rich Farago in Connecticut. How you doing? Good, Sam. Uh, you know, it's a very odd week because um, for those of us who are dual sports fans, you know, football and baseball mostly, this is the first Sunday that neither has uh, has occupied the airwaves since um, since basically last February. It's kind of an odd Sunday, but it can only mean baseball is getting closer, so it's all good. It can only mean that, uh, and we'll go down to Bensonhurst, uh, which you know Brooklyn is ripe with baseball history. Mister Mike Lacolan, uh, how you doing right now? I know you're probably you know we we got some Caribbean series for you. Baseball season's never over. Uh, yes, you know, uh, their respective playoffs are winding down. The Caribbean series runs from February 2nd through the 6th, if I'm not mistaken. So we've got a couple of days for that. But uh, otherwise, here I am, ready for more Metsian talk. Yeah, you know, it, it never ends. Uh, but unfortunately, we have to uh, start off with some devastating news for the entire sports world of Kobe Bryant's uh, passing as well as his Thirteen uh, year old daughter, it's just devastating to say it out loud. Uh they died in a helicopter crash. If you guys uh are not privy to the details, I'm sure most of you have all heard about it. And um I, I also heard I believe that the others uh who passed in the accident, um I, I, I didn't hear specifically about the pilot, but I do know that they were on their way to a basketball game for the daughter and she had a teammate with her, and either one of their parents or both of the parents. So our hearts go out to both the Bryant family and the family of all the, the lost ones in that. Um, I'll go to you first, Mike. You know, it, it's, I was telling you off the air uh, right before we got on that, like, you know, right before I heard the news, I had some trivial negative things that I was harping on in my head, and then all of a sudden you see that news and you're, you're, you're just – it all goes away. You're like, why am I complaining about that? This is a very short existence we have. Yeah. Uh, you know, this, uh, things like this put things back into perspective, you know, the fantasy of sports world versus the realities of life. I feel so badly, uh, for his wife and, and his children and her siblings. Uh, Terrible, you know. 
in my lifetime, I remember back when Thurman Munson passed away. That was a sad day here in the city, you know, something that hit home in New York. Uh, and prior to that, you know, I remember, I, you know, I, my uncle telling me when Roberto Clemente passed away, how how everyone was feeling when news broke out of that. So this is a tragedy, you know, and uh, like I said to you before the show, uh, these people, you know, they effectively live their lives in our living rooms uh, by the TV and whatnot. So sad day. My heart goes out to them. Rich, uh, you know, you and me are, um, we're all music fans here, but uh, I, 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 first thing that went to my mind in some fashion, you know, uh, uh, parallel in terms of like, the sur- the surrealness of it was the uh, the day the music died and uh, with Buddy Holly Richie Valens uh, and um, Big Bopper uh, and I, I just thought like it feels like the day basketball died you know people were reaching out to me today who are not sports fans let alone basketball fans that's how big this was from you know a cultural shock throughout all of America and possibly the world. Yeah, it is. And, um, you know, uh, to what Mike said, um, these guys, they're human too, and, you know, we, we all forget that at times. Um, so forget the fact that he's Kobe, Kobe Bryant and, and one of the best players in NBA history. Here was a guy on his way to his daughter's basketball game. It's a situation that we all could be in, three of us, um, you know, Anybody listening could be in that very same situation, whether it's in a car, no matter what it is. He's being a good dad, taking, you know, going to his kid's basketball game. And as I'm watching this stuff this afternoon um, and reading about it, you know, he was obviously very involved in his 13-year-old daughter's basketball life. Um, she, I heard she wanted to go to UConn, which is uh, kind of cool. She had already decided, you know, she had five years to go, but she already just told her dad that she wanted to go to UConn, which was really cool for me. And... Um, and you know, it, it like like Mike said, it's it, it's human life, and it, it could be snuffed out. Whether you're one of us talking about the Mets on a podcast, whether you're one of the most famous people in the world, like Kobe Bryant, and it, it's just a sad thing. And um, you know, one thing I was telling you guys before we went on, and I'll say it again here that for, you want to talk about perspective. Um, some I just read right before we went on, somebody said, you know, imagine what was going through his mind as that helicopter is plunging to the earth and he's thinking, uh, we're not going to survive, and then he looks and sees a 13-year-old, could you imagine anybody who's a parent, because we would all say the same thing, if it has to happen to me, fine, but my kid, oh my. And could, he had to think that, for what, whether it was 10 seconds, 5 seconds, or whatever it is, God rest his soul. And, and the fact that he had to go out with that in his head, I, I can't. I just can't. I have nothing left to say. And I'll add one thing unrelated, well, unrelated to, to Kobe, is that one of the people on the plane was Jeff Mc, was Jeff McNeil's high school coach. Um, I read that oh, just wow. a little bit ago, like ten minutes ago. And Jeff McNeil tweeted that if it wasn't for him, and I, I don't have his name in front of me, um, if it wasn't for him, I would not still be playing baseball. And so he said he's devastated by it, and um, and that if it wasn't for this particular coach, he wouldn't still be playing baseball. So. Um, wow. It's just sad, sad, sad day. 
It very much is, and I actually just had it in front of me, so I'm going to pull it back up. I did see that, and I, I didn't. I thought that was an unrelated uh, a tweet about a, another passing, and it's uh, that's sorry. That's that's. I mean, it's all it's all just devastating. Um, it, you know, it hits you across, Mike. It hits you across the face when you first see it, and and it's still weird to be discussing it. Uh, the way I am um, right now, you know, it, it, we, we have net stuff to talk about, um, but like the reality, and, 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 and it also makes it weirder too with the fact that LeBron just passed him. He, you know, Kobe wasn't just, you know, just a personality who was generally in our celebrity uh, uh, peripheral. Uh, you know, this, this he was in the press this this weekend because of LeBron. Um, I saw that uh, um, Stephen, our friend uh, uh, Stephen Keen of, of Cranepole Society, saw him with his daughter on the bat, the uh, Brooklyn sidelines the other night. It's yeah. you know you you uh, we we set ourselves up for death throughout our lives. We know it's coming. We know that uh, as as perfect as things can seem, as, as, as you know, pi- picture-perfect, glossy as everything can seem, we know that it could be coming, but we also know that there's examples that, you know, we can live as, as long as you can until, you know, nature takes its course. And then add the celebrity factor, we make these, these folks, uh, men, men or women, larger than life, and it makes that much of more of an impact in terms of like believing that that this this happened, you know, I mean, I, I I look back to when my dad died, and obviously like there's certain times when like I first landed in New York City, I wanted to call, like that instinct. We're like, oh, what are the who are the people that you you have to make the rounds to, and that split second where you think, oh, I got to call my dad, and then all of a sudden you say to yourself, he's not there. You know, those those moments are difficult for sure, and celebrities are not, of course, that. Uh, uh, connected in our lives the way the way that family members and friends can be, but there's some ways you set yourself up for those friend friend uh, uh, friend or family deaths. You you are emotionally almost more prepared sometimes to take that on. And and with these celebrities, I mean they they you're reminded in these moments that these are not gods and they are only humans who have ascended to the top of their skill set and. I it's just like even as we're talking about it, it's like I have to remind myself Kobe Bryant is not here anymore. Uh, well said, you know. And what can we take away from it? Well, perhaps it gives us cause to reexamine ourselves and what it is that we're doing and how we're doing it and who we're doing it with. You know, uh, you know, TV and, and media has a way of portraying only the 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 golden moments in these people's lives. But again, these are the realities of life. So, uh, you know, and no one is immune. Uh, so again, you know, uh, take these moments and, and re-examine uh, your situation and your condition, uh, knowing that at any moment, uh, you know, what we call life can be taken away from us. Yeah, uh, just uh, speaking of my dad, 
and uh, Norman Max Maxwell, slightly, slight shameless plug here because I'm making a documentary about him, but one of the points of the documentary that I'm trying to, to convey is the way my dad took on both life and death with a smile and a joke in many instances. And, and you know, as silly as, as he could get, we, uh, and, and as frustrating as sometimes that silliness could be when we were trying to seriously uh, talk about something, in, when he's staring down the barrel of the gun of cancer, and uh, he continues to smile and laugh, and, and it, it, it starts becoming a, a deflection in many ways. You know, I, I, uh, I go back to this joke that he always said in moments like this, and, and it's all, the all, I feel like it's the only way to take on life, and it's the only way to take on death, and that's a big theme of, of what I'm trying to get across uh, with the film is, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how is the play? You know, there, this, it's just constantly... There's constant death around. There's constant misery, uh, and yet the the best thing you can do is try to look on the bright side. Um, you know, uh, obviously, I don't think Mrs. Lincoln was thinking much about how uh, well she thought of the play at the time, but I think the the sentiment holds true nonetheless. Uh, and we'll segue to some much more trivial uh, uh, items. You know, and, and it's funny. Thinking how heated we got about all of this, I probably dropped more than uh, uh, more f bombs last week, Rich, than I ever have on this podcast. And it's funny the way we can get so heated about this, but then you know, then the moment like this happens, and, and you're reminded that this is kind of nonsense, uh, as much fun as we we have with it. So, without further ado, Louis Rojas is the 23rd manager of the New York Mets. Um, he has been hired this week, and it's funny to me that Carlos Beltran's still technically the 22nd manager, uh, even though he never got a game in, not even a spring game in. Um, and they'll always be that. When I heard, oh, he's the 23rd manager, it's like, right, Beltran still counts. I'm, uh, you, you were very vocal about what you wanted last week out of a manager. And I'm, I, I believe those concerns are still there. But now that it's uh, uh, official, do you? Uh, is there any positivity you take away from from this hiring of Louis Rojas? Oh sure. Um, you know the thing is, uh, if you saw Keith Hernandez's comments after the hiring of Rojas, that they're pretty much mine. My thoughts exactly, um, and maybe that makes us both crusty old men. I don't know, but um, but Keith said he was shocked by the hire. He thought that, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, um, he said that given where the team is, that it's on the borderline of being a very good team, certainly a contender, without much question there. They were a contender last year. He thought that a veteran manager was the right call, and that's exactly where I am with it, uh, or what, where I was with it. I thought that um, this really isn't the time to experiment, yes, Beltron was an experiment as well, but there's a bit of a difference there because Beltron has a long, long history in, in the majors and he Hall of Fame career. Hopefully he'll still get in. Um, Rojas, I think, is not the same situation, um, and I think it's an experiment. And it doesn't seem like you'd want to experiment at this point with this team. Okay, that said, I'm done with that part of it. Um, 
there are a lot of positives to take. You know, I'm looking at some things here as we're speaking, and, you know, the support of the players is probably the most important thing. Marcus Stroman, Dominic Smith, Pete Alonzo. Alonzo tweeted, love having Luis in 17 and 18 as my double-A manager. It's awesome playing under him and having him on staff last year as well. Super pumped to have him as the Jeff, which I don't know what that is. Uh, also, he throws some damn good BP. Okay. Um, baseball pedigree, yep, check. No question on that one. Uh, you know, players love him. Baseball pedigree has worked his way through the system. You know, I think it's kind of um, obvious at this point, but he joined the Mets organization in 2007. This has been talked about a lot. Managed in the Dominican Summer League then, and then he moved on to the Gulf Coast League, Low A Savannah, High A Lucy from 25, uh, to 2015 to 2016, and Double A Binghamton in 2018, and he was to be the quality control coach under Beltron. So all of that's a positive. You know, he knows the organization. He's an organization guy. He's earned it the way, you know, people should earn it. So there are a lot of positives there. Um, and here's my final statement on it. I, I didn't think it was the right time to go in this particular direction. Okay. There are some positive signs here, but here's the thing, my opinion. We just don't know at this point. We don't know how he'll handle the pressure. We don't know how he'll do in the press conferences and how he'll do in the bottom of the ninth inning when they're on the road in a tie game, you know, manipulating the bullpen. There's just no way to know. So my thought is wait and see. I'm not anti-Luis by any stretch of the imagination. Um, let's just wait and see what happens. That's where I am. I think you're taking a pragmatic approach to the entire thing. Mike, speaking of pressure, how he's going to operate under the, the uh, uh, you know, scenarios that Rich just laid out for us. Going back to the fact that you watched the Caribbean League, uh, I, I thought Frank Viola made an interesting point that other than the fact that he's got the Alou pedigree, uh, his father is Felipe Alou and his brother is Moises Alou, um, of course there's some other siblings that I'm – I know Jesus Alou and uh, Jesus Alou, excuse me, um, and some other names that I might be spacing on. So you have that pedigree to, to uh, even though he doesn't have major league experience, he's got a family with a lot of major league experience, especially his father who was a, a successful major league manager. Um, but the Dominican League, Frank Viola brought up the fact that every single game down there because of the short season is like the World Series. Do you think that that is going to be one of the number one things that prepares him for for managing in New York? It'll help. Experience is experience, you know, in, in any shape, way, or form. And, yeah, the short season format does force you to manage somewhat differently than a long season. Uh, you're managing for the short term and for short-term goal and for immediate impact. So you do do things differently. And, you know, it's nice to have those uh, gears and cogs all greased up for the moment. You want to be prepared. Uh, so, yeah, uh, pedigree, bloodline, you know, that factors in as well. And, you know, there's a lot of conversations that take place at the dinner table, you know, and, and a lot of that information gets passed on. There's a lot of insight uh, to be gained in very informal conversation when nobody else is around. Uh, perhaps you delve into 
conversations that, you know, let's say uh, Felipe Lou would have not ordinarily engaged in with, say, the media or another player or coach or whatnot, and, you know, and, and things that only a son can pry loose from him, you know, uh, are, 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 his, are his game, so to say. So, yeah, I think all that factors in. Uh, you know, but if we're going to spin this back around <clears throat> to Rojas and the Mets, it's clear the Mets weren't going to pay uh, a more well-established manager and Callaway uh, and, and, you know, uh, have that be uh, a burden on their books. And, and, you know, it's clear that the Mets and what do we mean by that? Jeff and Brody, you know, Brody's working for Jeff, uh, but they seem to not want an alpha in the manager. Otherwise, they would have brought in somebody far more experienced. Uh, you know, we, we, let's look at the last three attempts. Callaway, Beltran, and Rojas, I, I think uh, their resumes speak for themselves. They're a little shy in the experience department. So we understand this about the way they've been operating. Uh, but again, you know, and, and Rich brought it up, Rojas has resume. You know, you can you, – you can't – Say well, the Mets should have. Well, if this is the right man, they should have hired him in the first place. No, that's not necessarily so. They wanted to take a chance with Beltran. In the meantime, they did elevate Rojas. Rojas did elevate to the major league level, which in his progression was just that—a step up. Uh, So you know, his natural progression has nothing to do with perhaps wanting to hire Beltran at the time. Uh, So this is right right on uh, on time for Rojas, you know, being that there is a vacancy or was a vacancy, and he steps in. You know, he has the resume. He's paid his dues, as they say, uh, and he's worked himself up, and, and this is a natural progression for him, you know, uh, to be manager of a major league baseball team. It's an in-house hire, so a lot of those things work in his favor. It's really hard to knock disappointment, you know, uh, unless you're just totally against the idea and you're so staunchly, uh, you know, set on having a guy like Showalter or somebody like that. I mean, and Showalter was my number one choice, but it's just hard to knock Rojas and hard to knock the Mets' decision to go here. Obviously, they were pressed for time. They needed to do something quickly, uh, and this was a logical choice. It was in-house. It was perhaps one of the safest routes to take. And perhaps a wise and perhaps what might prove to be an effective, uh, you know, move. Uh, Sam, you said pressure. You know, pressure, let's see if the Mets are winning or the Mets are losing. That's going to define pressure. And, and, you know, obviously we're going to have to see how he manages a bullpen. That'll be pressure. Uh, All the other stuff... You know, he's been he's, – he's had practical experience interacting with players, development, teaching, coaching, you know, everything other than the major – spearheading a major league, you know, organization on the field. Uh, that's what he likes, and that's what we'll see in, in, in the upcoming season. I have this feeling that he's going to have them really well prepared, uh, both mentally and physically, for this game. And I think that that's where I do have some some optimism that this is going to translate to winning, especially with 
certain things uh, lacking uh, when it comes to the rest of, of the, uh, the leadership of the ball club. Um, <clears throat> Rich, I think I was rather fluid after Beltron, after the entire thing, which is uh, I described as surreal as well. Like, another thing, like, I, I still had to, like, remind myself is that Carlos Beltron, who I was looking forward to seeing how he could ma- manage a major league ball club, won't be doing so. Um, I'm there with Louis Rojas. I'm definitely looking forward to seeing how he continues his uh, managerial development. Um, and I think last last week I was rather fluid with, you know, giving saying, like, I would give him a shot, um, you know, ta- talking about some of the ex- uh, more experienced managers. I think I was definitely down with uh, uh, going for experience when we were first looking at who was going to be the manager of the Mets. And I guess my devil's advocate for this particular time, though, is that coming out of the Carlos Beltran thing with four to five weeks left, um, outside of the fact that the players were specifically vouching for Luis Rojas, is there any way, shape, or form you see how possibly, like, going experience with somebody, you know, who was definitely going to be a one-and-done manager from a year perspective – late 60s, really not going to, you know, doesn't have much left in terms of what to give from a managerial experience. You know, the Mets have gone experience at some point, like in Art Howe, and they completely backfired. Do you see a scenario, can you understand how there could have been a scenario because of uh, the this, this situation that the Wilpons, the way they operate, that this entire thing with a more experienced manager could have been a complete and utter shit show. Oh, certainly. Um, and I think that that certainly could have happened. And um, now, I'm not sure that a veteran manager would have been a one and done. I mean, if we think about that, let's just well, say let that. Well, let me also really quickly, let me scratch Girardi off the one and done list. Okay, fair. But if it's uh, Dusty Baker, who's up there in age. Buck, who I'm not sure how old he is, but let's just say they brought in a, a name, right? Buck, uh, Buck, Dusty, something like that, not Girardi. And and for all intents and purposes, it seemed like a short-term thing to get through this, you know, this choppy water that the organization faces. Okay, if this person took the Mets to to a championship or to a pennant, do you think they're really going to walk away from that person at that point? I, I would say no. I would say if they had Dusty Baker, seven years old or not, Buck Walter, whatever it was, um, that if you had some success, that would alter that plan very quickly. So the fact of uh, a short-term manager as a veteran, I'm not sure that was a foregone conclusion. Um, but, you know, we are where we are, and and we have Luis Ro- Rojas now. This whole thing about paying—I don't believe they're paying Beltron. I think that, from what I've heard, they're donating a million dollars to the Carlos Beltron Foundation, but they're not honoring the entire contract by mutual agreement. So, um, and uh, you know, I, I sit here and I don't necessarily want to believe that finances drove it. I know it's the Wilpons, and maybe maybe finances did. Um, but for whatever the reason, you know, um, he's here now, and, and I think this one could blow up just as badly. You know, I think it could be a situation where what if he is in over his head? What if they have 
the same kind of result as last year where, you know, so close, tantalizingly close, and if you look back at it, maybe there are some games that people would say Louis Rojas didn't do the right thing, and a couple of those games go the other way, the Mets are in the postseason. What happens then? So, but and here's my final point I wanted to make, which um, I know I find this food for thought for people. People, a lot of people on, on Twitter and, and in the, you know, the, the social media platforms were saying, oh, you know, the Mets just want a manager they can control. You know, they, they, won't, they won't hire a, a veteran. So they just want a manager they can control. That's horrible. That's a horrible way to run a ball club. All of this outrage about how too much influence from the front office and all of that. Okay. But then a lot of those same people are applauding the hiring of Louis Rojas which I find a bit strange because if, you, if you're trying to break that mold and say have a manager who's going to make his, his own decisions, that's the profile of a Buck Showalter. That's the profile of a, of a Dusty Baker, Joe Girardi even. Um, clearly what they did was they got a guy internal, 38-year-old guy you know, internally, and it, for all intents and purposes, seems to look like this is a manager who will be controlled to a large degree by the front office, and that's something that fans have been bitching about for a long time. So, again, whether or not he, they might win the World Series this year, he might turn out to be the best manager in franchise history, and I certainly hope he does. But there are some – I mean, come on, let's face it. He is going to be controlled by the, home, by the front office, but let's be honest. If Mickey was – you think Rojas isn't going to be? I mean, come on. Uh, so anyway, and maybe that'll turn out to be a good thing. Maybe it'll all be fine. But but I just wanted to throw that in. Fair point. And before I go over to Mike with it, I'll follow up with you on this. What do you think about Brody specifically? When everything you just said about about the possibility of control, why do you think Brody went out of his way to make a point that Rojas, like one of his best uh, managerial strength is in-game managing. <laughs> do you think that you think that that was him trying to cover for this idea that he was texting decisions, or do you think that was kind of a slight towards Mickey Callaway? <laughs> I don't know. I think man. it's both. I, I think it's both. I think Mickey. Let's face it. Mick, some of the stuff Mickey did was like ponderous stops way short of it. So, you know, Mickey was not an in-game strategist by any stretch of the imagination. But also I think Brody's trying to cover that whole thing, which you know damn well it happened. You know he was texting, and they were in Arizona at the time, and I'm sure that wasn't all of it, but it was. It came out during that series that he was texting somebody in the clubhouse, you know, clubhouse attendant, tell him to do this, tell him to do that. It probably happens in baseball, probably happened a lot with the Mets. And, yeah, I think it was both. I really do. Mike, do you remember – I don't remember what the show was. It might have been called The Clubhouse. But ironically, I think Ozzie Guillen was on it twice, once with the Chicago White Sox and another time with the Miami Marlins. The Miami Marlins one got cut short as that fell apart. But I remember watching – and obviously it's a television show, a reality show. But I remember watching Kenny Williams at some point, and he was just like on the treadmill watching the game – flipping out of certain things, but he wasn't texting anybody during it. You know what I mean? Like, when when it came out about Brody, I just, you know, me being the, the, the uh, screenwriter, like, I'm painting the picture of it. Like, Brody just sitting there, biting his nails, just texting away decisions. Like, what, what's your, you know, 
just on all of that, kind of uh, segueing to what I uh, I asked Rich about the uh, the the Brody line. What's your take on all of it? <laughs> Very simply, you know, you're forced into making decisions. After which, you know, you try to make it the right decision. And he's a he's a salesman, you know, so he paints these pictures for us. Yeah, that uh, that makes sense. No, you you uh, you put it perfectly. The salesman uh, element of it, and I think that's uh, a good place to go. Uh, uh, and I'll follow up with you, Mike, on this, Brody. This was uh, coming off of the you know the Belton hire, and the fact that that just blew off both the Wilpon and Brody's face. You know, for one thing, um, you know, I was sitting there with the press conference and like I just it wasn't Brody specifically it was just the the fact that we were doing this all over again I couldn't help just be like oh god guys guys please just you know I was looking forward to hearing from Rojas but I was just like this is just such utter nonsense you know dog and pony show so like with Brody this hire uh is a very important hire for him and and whatever's and and, and we did get a little confirmation uh, between the now, between the Beltron stuff now that things are moving still with Cohen. Like the the update is there is no update. We will let you know when things are completely negotiated. Well, according to to uh, you know, I guess Jeff is the one who said it. Things are progressing. So, uh, having said that, you know Brody von Wagenen. He, he did gain 10 games on whatever he did. Uh, and obviously, you know, it, it, it's going to be up to him to continue that momentum and continue it into the playoffs and, and then some. Uh, where do you think Brody stands right now? What, what kind of eye do you think Steve Cohen has on uh, the current GM of the New York Mets? Uh, that's a two-pronged question. Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, you, you know, this Steve Cohen thing is still very ponderous to me, how he makes, you know, his grand entrance, and that's the last we see of him. I, I don't understand this transaction. Uh, in the meantime, you know, the Mets seem to be running things business as usual. Uh, Brody, Brody, <laughs> Brody has an interesting season coming up. You know, uh, I think he's ex- he's exhausted uh, a lot of uh, a lot of options already. So let's see. This is an open-ended question that we're going to have to answer uh, along the way. Uh, in his defense, with Rojas, you know, they were somewhat cornered. And the best way, again, just to be fair about it, is to see how this plays out. Uh, if it ends up blowing up in their face, you know, we'll be talking about it. And if things go well, you, you know, I've said on this podcast many, many times, players render managers inconsequential. It's up to them. If they win, you know, we'll be lauding the work of Rojas. Uh, and, and that's the bottom line. Uh, the players and their uh, success or lack thereof on the field will go a long way towards forming our opinions as to the job Rojas is rendering in his new capacity. 
Rich, let me frame it this way. Is there any way Brody survives the transition from the Wilpons to Steve Cohen? Only if they win this year. And I'll say a pennant, yes, he survives. Um, World Series, yes, he survives. My opinion, anything short of that, he does not. Um, And I really think, look, it's like that in any business in America, probably in other countries too, but I'll speak to America, what I know, um, where you get new senior management. The first thing they do is they repopulate their lieutenants. It's just what they do. If you're a couple of layers below that, you're more insulated. You know, the worker bees tend, of course, stay the same. But the first thing, and I've lived it, you know, we all probably have, you get a new senior executive, and and the first thing that happens is the lieutenants are cleaned out. This person knows who he or she, whatever business it is, wants to bring in, and they slowly or quickly repopulate with those people. And, again, the only way that – Brody, I think, survives if it becomes a public relation nightmare to let him go. And the only way you get there is by having an incredibly successful season. Um, Anything other than that, it will be seen as a normal course of business, and it will just happen. It will happen because it always happens. It's not, you know, it's not at all uncharacteristic for it to happen. You know, most managers, when they come in, like you have a mid-season replacement or an off-season replacement, most managers bring in their own coaches. It's that first row of lieutenants again. It's what you're going to do. You're going to bring in people you're comfortable with. And what connection does Steve Cohen have to Brody Van Wagenen? Brody Van Wagenen had a connection to Jeff Wilpon. There you go. Jeff Wilpon, you know, Sandy, the guy who was put in by Major League Baseball, his time was over. So, Jeff populated his lieutenant ranks with someone he was comfortable with. And, and, and Steve Cohen is the same thing, unless there's some incredibly successful season. And, again, it, it gets to a point where you can say, well, how the hell can you fire Van Wagen? And he just delivered a pennant, just delivered a World Series. So that's my, my take on it. It's funny, as you're talking about, like, the way uh, corporate structure works, I couldn't help but picture that, uh, that scene in office space where they're, they're – uh, going through doing a, a layoff evalu- evaluation and the guy like I could just see Brody sitting down and the guy going what did you say you do here <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway Mike you know that great points you know it, 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 from the press perspective though um, Steve Cohen was rolled out we have yet to hear from Mr. Cohen uh, you're right you're absolutely right, Tim. We are yet to hear from Mr. Cohen. That's why I find this whole thing so ponderous. Uh, you know, can does this have the potential to fall apart like wet toilet paper? With every passing day, I'm more inclined to say yes. Yeah. So I, you know, I just don't know who who enters into this kind of an agreement. I don't understand this. Oh, anyway, yeah, uh, I think yeah. I, I, you're, I'm you're, in lockstep. You're right. I'm in lock. Otherwise, I'm in lockstep with uh, Rich. You know, uh, if Brody brings a pennant or even a World Series championship, it's going to be hard to definitely uh, the word to use about it. Um, yeah, I, know, I uh, otherwise, otherwise winning and losing, yeah. you, know, you know, usually is the, the determining factor in these decisions. You know, Rich, the Wilpons both leave us speechless 
and leave us screaming at the top of our lungs, tearing our hair out. Rich, you there? Uh, yeah, yeah. What, you said they leave us at the top of our, screaming at the top of our lungs, but I missed the rest. Oh, sorry. Um, I, I said that they, yeah, they leave us screaming. It's like they both leave us speechless and leave us screaming at the top of our lungs, pulling our hair out. <laughs> no, they they do, and um, and all we could do as fans is, is take the positive out of it, which is their days are numbered. Now that number might be high, it might be low, but they are numbered, and we know that. Um, I believe, again, leaning on corporate America, I believe that. They might nominally, on paper, to save face, have you know, on paper it might be, oh well, you know, they they have some level of control for five more years. I think that's all about saving face. They know that the fans don't like them, and they don't want to be, you know, they they don't want to subject themselves to, you know, some kind of a big old party, you know, that the fans would probably throw at City Field because they're out. So in order to save face, they probably structured something where at least on paper and at least for public consumption, they're going to be around for five more years. But if you think that Cohen's going to let them have any kind of decision-making authority, I mean, come on, we're all smarter than that. You know, Cohen, he, the man with the money makes the decisions. That's the way it's going to be. The Wilpons have, have, a, have structured a deal so they could go out, they could ride off gradually into the sunset, and they could save face. That's what that's about. The minute Cohen is approved and he is making the decisions. If, if anybody disagrees with that, please raise your hand because I don't see any way around that. Yeah, no, that's, you know, we say that's hopefully exactly what is going on. But, you know, there's just that, there's that part of our, of our brain that's just like, this is the Wilpons, we're not uh, out of the woods yet, as they say. There, there's so many other things. Uh, to talk about, you know, we don't necessarily need to go down that that Wilpon rabbit hole. Um, and I won't, because I, I I had another point to make, but I forgot it. So I will go to uh, something that that the Wilpons are trying to uh, to save face with. Uh, almost like you know, more than ten years later, it, it feels like uh, our friend um, Keith Blacknick. And a company, uh, as well as uh, Darren Meenan, uh, Shannon Shannon Stark. Uh, I believe I'm pronouncing his name right. If I'm getting uh, somebody correct me, if it's not Shannon Stark of Mets Police, um, and and others, when the Mets wouldn't do a fan fest, organized uh, a, a unofficial fan fest that was was really all the rage for for uh, many many years, and, and unfortunately. They had to cancel it this year, and it, co- it kind of coincided with this Mets fan fest that uh, they had um, just this past weekend. And, and I think a lot of the, the timing of the Louis Rojas news, Rich, certainly surrounded the fact that fan fest was coming up. Beltran was supposed to be there, yada, yada, yada. Uh, so I, I, I know that you went there. Uh, I believe of the three of us, uh, you were the only one there as, our, as the uh, a Metsian ambassador. Tell us what you, you brought back with you in knowledge and, uh, and opinion. Happily, thank you. Um, so I remember the Mets having a fan fest at Grand Central in 2003 and 2004. 
at the time, I was literally working across the street from Grand Central. So I remember going, it was like, it was in the middle of the week. It was like a, during weekdays. And uh, I remember going, you know, and, and it was, it was okay. I mean, it was, it was the company, the uh, team executives were there. They had a few players here and there. Um, but Mets hadn't done a fan fest, to my knowledge, since 2004. And so they had one yesterday. And so here are my thoughts in, in, in brief. Um, great thing to do. Uh, having a fan fest. I've been in Chicago when they do the Cubs one. I was there in business one weekend a couple of years ago. And it's an absolute week weekend long party. People it's everywhere. The entire city's crawling with Cub fans. They come in from all over. It's a it's a traditional thing. You know, fathers and sons pass down generations. So the Mets had something yesterday, and my first comment would be, to the Mets' credit, they tried to have something for everyone. So it was on floors two through six of City Field, and you walked in, and they handed you something that said, "Here's what's going on on this floor, that floor, that floor." Great. Okay. So I went up to, I mean, I'm not going to chase players around for autographs at my age, so I went up to the, um, to the Caesars Club, or not, it's called the Foxwoods Club now, where they had panel discussions. So at one point they had Mookie Wilson and Brandon Nimmo. At another point they had the three new guys, they had Batansis, Waka, and Porcello. And it was a mixed format where uh, Mary Saul Castro would, would MC one and then Colin Cosell the other. And um, they would ask the guys questions, and they would pass the mic around. Fans get to ask questions. It was the same format for all the panel interviews. Fantastic. They had a situation where on uh, the first floor, I think floor two, um, you could go down and you could go into the Mets clubhouse, the visitors clubhouse. um, And a couple of other observations were to get player autographs, that was on one particular floor. And you had to have a special ticket to get into that floor. I think it was third floor. Um, so I didn't do that. But the players were walking around all the floors just randomly. So you'd be walking along City Field, and then you see a big old line of people. Oh, that's Ahmed Rosario signing autographs. And, well, they, not signing autographs, but taking pictures. You couldn't do autographs except on floor three if you bought the ticket. So if you waited in line, get your picture taken with Ahmed Rosario. Oh, over there is Porcello's doing pictures. Over there we had Jacob Raymond, Tyler Bachelor. So it was sort of random. That was kind of cool. You didn't know who you were going to see. Um, so great job, Mets, having it. it. It's a little bit overdue, but who cares? They did it. It's great. Um, had a great time with it. The only thing I would say is, and just people should know this for next year, if they do it the same way, it was self-guided. So you, you, got a, you just knew what was going on on each floor, and you kind of made your way around. There was an opportunity to go in the SNY booth if you wanted to go to the fifth floor, get off there, and go in the SNY booth. Or, so it was unstructured. Um, and you kind of felt your way along. Uh, they gave you a two-hour session. So what was happening was people were – your session was coming to an end, and people were saying, oh, well, you know, I, I was in the visitor's clubhouse, and I got to take three swings in the batting cage. Well, no one knew that. All it said was Mets clubhouse, visitor's clubhouse. I didn't know that if you went down there, you could actually get in the batting cage, take a few hacks. And uh, the guy was like, oh, yeah, you know, I saw J.D. Davis down there, and, I, and he gave me a few batting tips. So there wasn't a lot of information about exactly what was going on in each section, and it was self-guided, so you, it was hit and miss, basically. But maybe that's okay. Maybe that was the point. The point was come to City Field, do your own thing, players floating around randomly, get your picture taken here, get your picture taken there. If you like non-structured events, it would have been absolutely perfect for you. If you're someone who likes structure where, okay, 
you, you know, if you're in the four to six session, you could take hacks between 415 and 445 in the visitor's clubhouse. If you wanted that level of specificity, this might not have been exactly right for you because you just didn't know. You had to kind of hunt and peck your way around. But let, let's give them credit where credit's due. They had a fan fest. There was a lot of variety. In one of the panels, it was only kids got to ask questions. I thought that was cool. The kids asked better questions than the adults, quite frankly. Um, so they had a lot of variety, a lot of different things, and, and you were entertained the whole time. They even had face painting for the little kids. So it was kind of cool. And, and kudos to the Mets for doing it. So it sounds like the biggest thing you would take away that they need to improve on is certain levels of communication, which sounds about Mets. Well, right. Yeah, you know, and I personally would have liked that. Like, all it said on the card was floor two, you know, this. Floor two uh, uh, is this. Floor five is uh, Foxwoods Club. But you didn't know what was going on in the Foxwoods Club. You didn't know who the panel was going to be. So I'm sitting there, and I'm like, oh, okay, here comes Mookie and Nimmo. They did a panel together. It would be nice to say, you know, in the Foxwoods Club, the second panel during your session is Mookie and Nimmo. But that level of information just wasn't available. You just had to go. And it was like, oh, look at this, the three new guys. And maybe the surprise factor is what they wanted. They wanted to force the informality. And if that was intentional, I get it. But if it wasn't, then what I would say is maybe have a little more structure and say, if you're going to go to Foxwoods, here's what you're going to see. You're going to see a panel of of the new guys, you know, in this time slot, Mookie and Nimmo in this time slot, You'll be able to ask questions. There'll be a roving mic. I would have personally put that level of detail in, but it was kind of random. But you know what? It was fun. Well, it sounds like the player part, like you said, they wanted to keep informal the surprise element of it. But the batting cage part, like that's something that could could get people, even more people to buy tickets. Hell, yeah. I mean, I saw people, we went, a bunch of us went to dinner after, in a place called McKellar's, which is right attached to the field. It didn't know it existed, but anyway, it's like a brewery. And um, and the guy showed me pictures of, like, he's in the cage with J.D. Davis. I'm like, man, I would have loved to do that. But all it said was Mets Clubhouse, Visitors Clubhouse. It didn't say you could go in and actually put a helmet on and take some hacks. And they make you sign a waiver that if you get beamed, you know, they're not responsible. It was it was pretty amazing, but you didn't know that, you know. So, anyway, that that's my only – I don't want to criticize the great thing, but that's my only point. Were the batting tips J.D. Davis uh, uh, gave uh, listens for the trash can? Sorry, I had to. Um, <laughs> Sam, that is awesome. That, that's art right there. <laughs> what did you say? I said that's art right there. Good job. Thank you. Thank you. I might have stumbled a little bit uh, at, the, uh, at the, the, the takeoff. But uh, anyway, I like J.D. Davis, and, and you know, I, I don't want to um, – I think everybody is speculating everything now. So I'm not specifically talking J.D. Davis because I know that, like, a lot of things, people were talking about his splits last year, but this is a rabbit hole I don't necessarily want to go down. J.D. Davis and his personality can stay on my team anytime, and his hitting, of course. Yep. So, yeah, so, so Mike, you know, is this something you might be interested in, having heard what Rich has to say about it uh, in the future? Uh, yes. Without a doubt, uh, by his description, I would say they hit a home run, even if that was a, a bit of a surprise factor in the batting cage. Perhaps they didn't want to tie any one player at any given, you know, length of time to the cage. Maybe that was an impromptu, uh, you know, tutelage on his part. 
maybe he was only there for 10 minutes or 15 minutes in and out and somebody else. I don't know. I'm just uh, making up scenarios now. But uh, from everything that Rich says, I, I would say they hit a home run. Uh, if, it, if it indeed was a non-structured event, uh, which I, I'm, I'm totally game for, uh, sounds sounds great. Sounds great. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't put it beyond them to uh, sprinkle in a little bit of a surprise factor. Uh, you know, uh, two people aren't going to come away from that event with the same experience. Uh, and if you can only uh, multiply that by several factors, I think that only uh, adds to the uh, experience as a whole. Here, here. Uh, Rich, thank you for your take on it, and uh, hopefully I am able to make it next year. Um, so we actually do have some personnel news to talk about. Eduardo Nunez, uh, former Yankee, has uh, been signed in a minor league deal. Um, looks like he's 36 years old now. Uh, Mike, what's your take on this depth move? Well, just that depth. You know, he can't hurt. He's an infielder, so uh, he'll be in the mix for a job. Spring training. And let me – I want to scratch that real quick. Sorry to cut you off. I just want to uh, correct it. Yeah, he's 32, 32 years, years old. He's 32. 32 years old. But, uh, you know, spring training is just a, a stone's throw away at this point. So uh, nothing wrong with adding depth. Uh, and, you know, an invitation is fine, uh, you know. Obviously, he, like everyone else, will have to prove themselves on the field and see if he moves forward in April. No harm. Uh, you know, it can only help. It can't hurt. I'm not sure how uh, where his defense stands, um, but, Rich, I'm guessing he's not as bad as – I mean, like, Yankee fans must have just been freaking out because I remember watching and just going, oh, Jesus, when he was just dropping ball after ball would go through his legs. Uh, but he he would stay in the lineup because he could just kill the ball uh, from a hitting standpoint. So he was in Boston last year, uh, 228 batting average and 167 at bats. Um, you know they're obviously signing him for his bat. I'm guessing he's gotten better than than uh, the Knobloch effect on the Yankees. Yeah, I, you know Nunez is he's not a shortstop. You know, and I think he when Jeter got hurt that year. And um, the Yankees had to use shortstop. That's when the balls are going through his legs, and it was like, oh my God, what's going on here? You know, he's not a Gold Glove caliber defender, and certainly not at shortstop. I think his best position is third base. Um, and you know, and he, I wanted the Mets to get him desperately in 2016 when the Mets were making that run, and um, the Twins traded him to the Giants, if you remember. And at that time. He was still stealing a lot of bases, and I love that element of speed on the team. I believe he ended 2016 with 40 stolen bases, close to the league lead, did not lead the league, but was very close. And um, and he was mashing the ball. He was over 300 that year, you know, with a little bit of power. So um, and it was a great pickup by the Giants to grab him. And so you know he's had bad years since. You know he hasn't. I think 17 with the Red Sox, he was okay. 18 and 19 were not good years for him. And he's obviously getting up there in, in, in years at 32. So, so here's what you have: you have a guy who has had a you know a couple of um, nondescript seasons, never been known for the glove in the National League. You know, you have to play defense, and um, so, you know, but as a depth move, like Mike said, and like you said, Sam, what's wrong with it? You know, you're bringing in a major league veteran 
who has shown, it was not 10 years ago, it was recently as three years ago, that he could really be an offensive force. Maybe use him off the bench. You know, nobody's saying he should be your starting third baseman. I believe Jeff McNeil's got a claim to that role. But um, for infield depth, he could probably play all over the infield in a pinch. Veteran guy, you know, why the hell not, Adam? I, look, Sam, you probably can see this coming a mile away. Last year, they brought Ruben Tejada up in August, okay? I'd rather have Eduardo <laughs> Nunez. It's an upgrade. <laughs> Yeah, no, you are right. Um, whatever Ruben brings, quote-unquote, defensively, and let's face it, he he has gems, but I put him on the, like, Daniel Murphy level of, of gems. Uh, although he didn't have as devastating of a of a, um, a, a play as Daniel Murphy did on, on that side. Um, you know, one of those things where you think, like, oh, he's going to be this great defender, and then you get a moment in the World Series. But uh, yeah, no, I have to. I have to agree with you. Uh, with the third base depth, that's that's interesting. Talking, you know, that he's. I'm I'm still kind of uh, looking at that shortstop time with the Yankees. Of course, that's so infamous. It's like, how can it go away in your in your brain? Um, it's, you know, because it's just something you rare that you ever see with the the pinstripes. But yeah, so like thinking about the Rajai Davis move last year. Uh, uh, you know, some other depth moves, like it, it's right up Rhodey's alley. And uh, to be perfectly honest, I mean, considering like he brought Danny Espinosa in last year, we, we almost forget about that. Like there were a lot of players backing for positions in spring training last year. So that could be what we're, what we're seeing uh, uh, going down the, the line before we get to our, um, probably the easiest number we're ever going to do in, in uh, when it comes to these episode numbers uh, I, I, you know, the Starlin Marte trade rumors are still there. I am still under the, uh, uh, I, I still am in the opinion that we should not be looking to give up personnel who could potentially complement whatever major player that we could get in free agency over the next few years. This is the way the Mets should be operating, but we know they're not going to operate right now. So, considering that they like this is you know like you want to do something but if you're not going to do anything don't get cute that's my opinion but uh mike something that came up recently about it was the potential for Johanna Cespedes to be involved and make it a three-team trade um, i don't want that to happen because i kind of want a swan song for Johanna Cespedes' Mets career here but that's that's just the emotional that that's all emotion for me. I want to see Johanna Cespedes continue as a Mets masher, uh, and I have a feeling with the money cut that he's going to be pretty motivated. Even though I don't like all the idea that he he wasn't he can only be motivated by money. The guy crossed the the ocean for crying out loud. But uh, uh, going to that, what's your opinion on on any all those scenarios like like. Brody, I thought he was a little lawyer speak, uh, as he always is when Steve Gales asked him about the rumor. Uh, but he also had a pretty measured, we're really not going to do anything major right now. We're always going to be looking into that. But we're, we're ready to, you know, do some complimentary pieces and go from there. Um, I feel like Brody's actually on the same page that I'm on. Uh, 
And obviously the Robinson Cano came this December. It was splashy. It was early on in his, his career. He seems to understand both because of maybe the Wilpon factor as well as, as um, if you're not going to be shopping in, in you know, the top shelf, let's not do anything at all. I feel like he's kind of along the same page with, with uh, uh, me. Anyway, I'm rambling this question on. Good to like, Mike. <laughs> I think there's a little bit of 2015 inside all of us. You know, yeah, you want bang for your buck, whereas Cespedes is involved and you want to see him have, you know, what we believe should have been, you know, years of, uh, of success in a Mets uniform. That being said, you know, he's suddenly more affordable for other teams. And you know what? If he's going to make a comeback, that should probably take place in the American League where he can DH. Uh, I don't care if it's a three-team trade, four-team, five-team trade. I don't care. If it means we can move Cespedes and bring in Marte at face value, I'm all for it. Because, you know, in the National League, you need somebody who can roam the range. And, you know, Cespedes is coming off of a surgery on both feet. You know, so uh, talk is one thing, you know, uh, proof is in the pudding. He would have to go out there and play outfield, you know, and if he's going to be a part-timer, if he's going to be not up to, you know, if if he can't meet expectations, why entertain it? If we can move him, if the opportunity is there, if we can bring in, we, the Mets, can bring in Marte, and like I say, if it's strictly body for body, I'm all for it. You know, obviously price uh, is involved, you know, and you don't want to overpay and you don't want to undo your own situation with this one trade. So, sure, uh, be cautious about what you do, but if opportunity knocks, I think the Mets should open that door and welcome it in. You know, if I'm uh, putting my practical hat on, Rich, if the Mets are able to get Starlin Marte while moving a contract like Despotis, obviously it's less money now and more affordable to teams. But um, if, if they're able to do that without moving uh, pieces like Nimmo or others, I guess I, I can't be uh, hating on it that much. No, you can't. But the only thing is um, Mets have a crowded outfield right now. And so, you know, how is this all going to – and they're not necessarily the right pieces either, but they've got a lot of bodies. You know, they've got – you've got Nimmo. You've got J.D. Davis, who's probably going to play the outfield. You've got Conforto, perhaps the return of Cespedes. Um, so what are you – you know, you don't really want to start adding pieces without trading, getting someone off the squad. You can even throw Dom Smith in that mix because we all know he's not playing first base. So – you have him, too, as a, as a potential outfielder, which, of course, I do not support. But um, So you've got a lot of people, and it would make sense to bring in a Starling Marte, but at the same time, you've got to move one or two people out, you know? And, and I'm with Mike. I love Cespedes. I, you know, I, I bought his jersey the first night he played for the Mets. I, I was thrilled that they had them, and, and, I, and I was thrilled when they re-signed him for one year for 16, and then when they signed him for four years going into 17. I'm a big U.N. Cespedes fan, but 
Mike's right. You know, he he probably needs to be a DH at this point in his career, and good for him. Let him go back to the American League and let him DH. Let him get something left, you know, whatever he has left. Let him get the opportunity to squeeze that out in a situation where he could do so. You know, um, I'm not sure if you guys watched Hot Stove last Wednesday, and I, I'm still laughing about this, but uh, they showed Cespedes running, and they're like, okay, you know, here's some Mets news. Cespedes was running. Maybe you've seen this video on social media. Gary Apple, quote, he looks more like a middle linebacker. I don't think Ioannis has missed many meals lately. I mean, that's just funny. And it's a little bit mean, but it's funny. And, um, and, but the point is this. The point is Cespedes has to play his way into playing shape. He running and, and covering a lot of ground and being on his feet a lot is not going to be his forte at this point, given the surgeries. So it makes 100% sense to move him to an American League team the Rays make perfect sense because they're budget conscious, and Cespedes I six million this year, I believe. So Cespedes would make a lot of sense for them. He's a budget quality guy, who's a, who could be a, an impact player. And and the Mets need to clear some space in the outfield, especially if you're going to bring in a Starling Marte. So sign me up with Mike's plan. I'm aligned to that. Um, you know, I'm all as much as I like Cespedes. I think it's time for him to go. I'm all about bringing Marte. I like guys who play in position, and he would be the natural center fielder on the team. So um, I'd like to see all of the above happen. So to be clear, only in the Marte scenario, Mike. And sorry, sorry if you need me to. Raise that question. Sorry if you need me to. I'll elaborate on it a little bit. You will only move Johannes Cespedes if it's in a scenario like Starlin Marte as opposed to a complete $11 million money dump where we get Jacob Ron. <laughs> well, I'm, you know, I'm not interested in a, in a salary dump per se. Uh, no, if you're going to make a transaction, make it worth your while. You know, try to get value in return. So the fact that we're talking Starlin Marte, that's why I'm – interested in jumping all over that you know I think this is a unique opportunity if it if it in fact is a real possibility I would love for them to jump all over it you know uh, it's all in the timing and you know you have to gauge each and every individual separately so this is a, a good good situation if they could pull something, something off here here uh, and before we segue out Rich I'll, I'll finish with you don't move Cespedes if it's just for what we're used to the Mets doing with, like, Bruce and, and uh, uh, you know, the only time I can ever really think about it, uh, seeing it work out, other than maybe Dilson Herrera, was Zach Wheeler with Carlos Beltran. But, uh, yeah, your opinion, move Cespedes in a Starlin Marte-type three-way deal. Otherwise, you let him build up his value? Well, you know, you have to ask yourself the question: Does Cespedes have more valuable? Is he have, does he have more value to the Mets on the team or as a trade piece? And I think it's the second one. You know, if he's going to have to play the out, he, somebody said make him a first baseman. Let's, let's just get that nonsense off the table. If he's going to play in the National League, he has to play the outfield. He will not, by any stretch of anybody's imagination, he will not be able to be a regular outfielder. So now you have a part-time player. Right. You have, by definition, you have a part-time player. Is he more valuable to the Mets in that role off the bench, which he's never done in his career, 
or is he more valuable to an to a, as a trade piece to an American League team, perhaps a three-team trade, right? If that's the Marte deal, that's great. But is he more valuable? Can, can you do better moving him to an American League team that sees it? Look, six million bucks, we can get a lethal hitter off the bench as a DH. That's fantastic. That could be whether you trade directly with that American League team, a three-way trade, whatever it is. Cespedes has more value as a trade piece than as a New York Met, given his physical condition. So I would love to see it be Marte, but on the other hand, they need to turn him into something they can use because I don't think they can use him in the given given his circumstances. It's a valid point all around. Uh, the outfield element, the legs, we'll see what happens. It's going to be... A really interesting next few weeks, and uh, and spring training is right around the corner. How about that? You have been listening to a Metsian podcast with Sam, Rich, and Mike, and we are so thankful that you have. Uh, we are segueing to our uh, history, uh, historical elements of the podcast. Uh, we, for all of those listening for the first time, with our official episode numbers, not our specials, we like to... Uh, uh, Correlate uh, uh, correlate the episode number with the uniform number, and tonight we have number 41, meaning the list is going to be rather short and stopped in 1977 with Mr. Tom Seaver. Tom Seaver obviously is the number 41 in Mets history, but there were four other players prior to Tom Seaver to wear the uniform number, including a... National League New York legend, Brooklyn legend, Clem LeBond, who wore the uniform from uh, April 11, 1962 to 5-8-1962. Unfortunately, I believe Clem was released at that point, and if I am not mistaken, he retired. Um, Grover Powell, 1963, Jim Vesky, 1965, and the last player to ever where number 41 before it was forever immortalized that is Gordy Richardson uh, you know we're, we're coming up uh, Rich on a Tom Seaver statue finally uh, I think we should definitely play the, the angle that you played with the fan fest let's stop bitching about the fact that it took so long and be thankful they're finally getting it right I agree and at this point you know, those other Clem Levine, of course, had uh, a lot of baseball history and all of that. And but at this, if you're going to do 41 on a Metsian podcast, you have to talk Seaver and Seaver only. And um, what more can you say? I mean, the franchise. You know, that moniker was put on him for a reason. Um, he was the best at what he did. A very big reason why the Mets had the success they had in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, I hated, you know, the the fact that he was traded, we've talked about this on this podcast, it's not altogether unique, you know. He was in a dispute with, with the front office. They both had a fair point, and they traded him. Bad, yes. Hurt me as a kid, yes. But at the same time, it happens in sports. So it's not so much that, but it, it was the, the animosity between Seaver and the organization and then he came back. I was at the game, you know, when he walked in from the bullpen in 83. And you thought, okay, things are getting better. And then they, they don't protect him, and he goes and wins his 300 game as a White Sox at Yankee Stadium, ironically. 
Um, and then there's more bad blood. He works for the Yankees in the booth, which killed me, you know, working alongside Rizzuto for all those years. Um, and then finally, there was a little bit of detente with the Mets in the late 80s when they retired his number. Um, and he started doing Mets games in the booth, which was great. And so it's been a, a – for a guy who is the franchise icon, the guy Seaver Way, you know, City Field sits on Seaver Way, all of that, everything he was, it's been a much more rocky road than it should have been. There have been a lot more ups and downs than, than there should be for your franchise player. Look at Eli. Eli never played for another team, never any any animosity between him and the Giants. I mean, I know he didn't love the fact that, that um, that oh, can't remember the coach's name, sat him down and all that broke broke the streak. Uh, McAdoo sat him down and broke the streak and all of that. But there wasn't this public animosity like it was between Seaver and the Mets, and it's so sad that it went up and down and up and down. Um, so to me, that that's the thing I think about. I think about the greatness. I think about he made me a Mets fan. You know, he was my guy. You know, as a little kid. Um, and but I just wish there weren't the ups and downs. Not just the trade. I just wish there weren't the ups and downs that there were. That he just stayed a beloved figure in Mets history, and he beloved the organization back. And it just wasn't that way. But at this point, it is what it is. We're getting the the, tro- the, uh, the statue, like we said, you know, better late than never. Let's not complain. We have Seaver Way. That's great. And my final point will be we talked earlier about athletes are human with the Kobe situation, and, and look at Seaver. I mean, dementia is a terrible thing. You know, it took my own mother, um, and he has it, and um, – He's a he's a guy with dementia now, and and in his uh, in his older age, I mean, we have to think about that. You know, this guy is is like anybody else at this point. You know, he he has a terrible disease, and and we pray for his health. Yeah, and it's it's uh, surreal as well. You know, given the Kobe news, I, I did actually think about Tom Seaver earlier today, and, and just. Just with the fact that you know, the fact that the way life is, and and the fact that Tom Seaver has is still around, even though he has dementia. Like like, it, I know it doesn't necessarily exactly correlate to the Kobe stuff, but but you know, I I did it did go through my mind, um, uh, you know, star like like Tom Seaver, and and it's just it, it's. It's all random, like you know. It's, it's now we're getting into a philosophical ex- existential talk, but all of this stuff is is so random. Um, Mike, your thoughts on Tom Seaver, and uh, you know we're getting a statue this year. That's exciting. Now, did the Mets disclose where that statue is to be put? Is it going to be along Seaver Way or at an undisclosed location, guys? Good question. I, I will check if there's any update right now. Okay, and the reason why I say that, you know, if you want to, if you want to, if you want to display it prominently, it's going to go in the front, right? Perhaps by the rotunda and I, in the I would agree. somewhere. I would agree with you because, you know, for as much as we appreciate the efforts by the Mets on behalf of Seaver with Seaver Way. It's still across the street from the former chop yards, which, which right now are, are just barren. And I think that would be a disservice 
if you're going to go through the motions of putting up a statue. Just a random thought. No, uh, you're you're absolutely right. I think it needs to be some way, somehow, they need to put it around the same place that um the uh, uh, the, the I mean, you, want, you want to be able to see that from the train, no? You would think. Yeah, you would think, but you know they put you, they put the home yeah. run apple completely yeah, well, out of everybody's know. view when they open City Field, man. Ah. <laughs> there, there you go. There you go. They hid the apple away from us year one. What a travesty that was. All right, Tom Seaver. You know, Rich is right. You know, uh, 83 was, was heartbreaking. Having him come back to New York only to be left unprotected and claimed by the Chicago White Sox. And then watching him come back to New York as a member of the White Sox, and win his 300th game as a member of the White Sox at Yankee Stadium. Remember watching that game. Uh, I was so happy for him, but I always felt that that should have taken place in a Mets uniform. Uh, No denying that. Uh, And it was very ironic that uh, he potentially would have faced the Mets in 1986 in the World Series were it not for injury. So, as Rich say, a, a very fractured uh, history if you're a certain age. Obviously, if you remember uh, 69 and his rookie season and perhaps 73, you know, that's where it starts for me. Uh, photographic memory for me and total recollection really starts for me in 74, 73, you know, images here and there and moments time and things of that nature but you know I always consider myself lucky enough to have seen his 75 season uh his third Cy Young with the Mets and you know and that was a a a marvel to behold it was a showcase in greatness if, if you were young like myself at the time and to have seen that you know I didn't see 69 obviously but uh yeah to see him go with the trade now here's something we can't blame on the Wilpons because this is the old ownership and you know and Donald Grant and, and the Mets front office at the time like a lot of the old school owners they were still very averse to the oncoming era of free agency uh, and they were still you know uh, they still maintained a combative attitude towards that oncoming element in baseball. You know, 77, it was still a staunchly old school game despite the advent of free agency. And and, and M. Don Grant was one of them. Unlike, uh, you know, Cross Town and, and the new Yankees owner at the time. So Tom Seaver, uh, just happy to have seen his career. Uh, I, you know, those days watching him pitch in a Cincinnati Reds uniform, Ooh, never, never once did they sit well with me. Uh, and when Seaver came so back, ugly. And, I, I still, I still like can't look at it. Yeah, and when he came back and faced Kuzman in that in that first uh, confrontation, you know, uh, that was uh, painful, painful. So, you know, otherwise, there's another name on this list that we should give credit to, isn't there, Sam? Clem uh, Levine. Uh, yeah, great reliever for the Dodgers uh, for many years. Swing man, kind of really 
uh, one could argue, and one did argue to me, um, uh, that he was the really like the first reliever, you know, uh, uh, in many ways. Like he he was utilized. Oh, sorry, the first closer. Excuse me, not reliever. That he was utilized to to uh, when you needed somebody to get the game to you know all the way to the ninth inning uh, when the starter wasn't going to be able to go deep. Um, I, I don't have his numbers in front of me uh, at all, but uh, Mike, if if there's any way you can pull those up real quick and to give, uh, he didn't do uh, great uh, with the Mets, but uh, um, he had a great no. career with the Dodgers. But as a member with the of, of the Brooklyn Dodgers in '55, their championship season, he led the league in six with 60 appearances. The following season of '56, he led the league with 47 games finished and 19 saves. And in 57, he also led the league with 17 saves. So you are correct in your assessment of his, uh, in his role as a reliever. Uh, I had the great fortune of meeting him at MCU Park in Coney Island, uh, another one of the Brooklyn Cyclones events back in the day. And uh, I have a little banner with, a, with several of the Brooklyn Dodgers autographs on it. Uh, and to my great fortune, he is one of them, Plum Levine. That's fantastic. Uh, yeah, he, he he's uh, uh, quite the character. You know, I, I God, I'm oh Rick Elliott. Rick Elliott is his family friend. His him and his father uh, work. I oh God, I'm I'm spacing on what the I believe it might have been Silk, but they they had a factory up in uh, Rhode Island together, and that was basically Clem's job, uh, uh, both in the off season as well as. Uh, you know, post uh, his playing career, and um, you know, Rick Rick really sold me in terms of the the, the closer element of of the entire thing that he really was, and and in many ways un, unsung, uh, uh, one of you know, one of the players that you really can be pointed to in transition to what the modern reliever is. Rich, uh, if you have anything to add on some of these other players. Um, I really don't. I mean, um, you know, Clem Levine, you hit it. You know, that that's the name I know. The others are, oof, uh, I can't say that I have a lot to offer on them. And, um, so I, I yeah, I, I guess I, I don't have much to add here other than well, I'll, to I'll say. Also, I'll also follow up, I'll, I'll also follow up with this. You're right about how it should, it, it, was rockier than it should have been considering he's the all-time franchise great. And still to this day, uh, you know, even though obviously the dementia kept him away, one of the reasons why it seems they, they um, you know, took so long was because of willpon animosity in some weird fashion. But anyway, um, I will ask you, considering that we know that uh, he should have been with the Mets the entire career, he wasn't, he came back in 1983, what do you remember about Tom Seaver on the Mets in 1983? What I remember was he was – I don't have his – I don't have the number in front of me. I believe he was 6-10 and 10 or something like that. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it was something like that. He was below 500, but he was effective. You know, he pitched well. It was a bad team. And what I particularly remember is um, – what, what, what I'll point to, not so much remember, is I, in reading Ron Darling's book, he talked about Seaver's influence on that team because remember, Darling came up in September of '83, and he said that Seaver was kind of like the wisecracker in the in the clubhouse. 
Um, he used to really give Darling a lot of crap, you know, humorously. And, um, you know, it was a good influence. And it was like, it was, ama- Darling talks about how amazing it was to walk into the Mets clubhouse and see Tom Seaver there and know you're his teammate. You know, so he had, um, remember where the Mets were in 83. You know, they were, they had a bad year, but the pieces were in place. They had gotten Hernandez. And you could see something was starting to turn. And having Seaver there as the veteran leadership along with Hernandez, you know, I think we've all seen that, that amazing double play they turned where it was a 1-6-3, uh, I'm sorry, 3-6-1, where Seaver makes the play on the back end after Hernandez made an incredible dive through to Santana, Santana back to Seaver. That, we've seen that on video many, many times. And um, so having him there, you kind of thought, okay, this is great. You know, they suck this year, but, but you can see the young players coming up, you know, the Mookies, the Hubies, Coming up, you know, they've got they've got guys like Dykstra on the farm. Um, this is going to be something. Sieber's going to be here to see the Mets rise to prominence again. How great is this? And then, you know, they go ahead and leave him unprotected, and the White Sox claim him. So, um, but I, that's what I remember. What I remember was, you know, he was effective, obviously older, but effective. Not not a great stats line on a bad team, but the thought that this team was heading somewhere. And he was going to be there to enjoy the Mets' re-rise to prominence. And how great would it have been if he had led that a second time? But then the Mets were the Mets and left them unprotected. So, Mike, I'll go to you uh, with this, and maybe you can shed some light on it. I still am so confused as to how that happened anyway, because like, if he was on the 25-man roster for the entire season, how did he get to the point of being left? protected it just doesn't make any sense to me and it's funny that it turned into Dwight Gooden but I'm sure they could have probably figured out how to get Dwight Gooden and Tom Seaver on the same rotation you know what ultimately that decision was made by Frank Cashman we know him today to be you know a, a, a very astute decision maker Potluck, man. What, what what can I say? He didn't feel it necessary to protect him, thinking that no other team would, you know, would claim him. Uh, but let's not forget that Frank Cashin had spent the previous three years building up, and as Rich says, in 83, a lot of those pieces started falling into place uh, with the promotion of Strawberry. Uh, with the acquisition of Hernandez, uh, with the emergence of Jesse Orozco. I believe it was the month of August. He had one pitcher of the month, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, And a lot of things were coming together, uh, especially late in that season. So, you know, whereas protecting him would have been the emotional thing to do, fan-wise, I think you're speaking about a man who had a plan in place and perhaps didn't quite see uh, the urgency in retaining a 38-year-old pitcher who, you know, many thought should have been uh, moving closer towards retirement than anything else. But we know he went on to pitch two more years for the White Sox, excuse me, uh, two and a half more years for the White Sox and a little bit with the Red Sox. You know, three more seasons. Who knew? You know, but we're talking about Frank Cash and having to make a decision on on a 38 year old. Uh, and as Rich says, yeah, he finished below 500 with a 9 and 14 record, but uh, still posted 
uh, an effective 3.55 ERA and pitched 231 innings. Uh, something he hadn't done in the previous three seasons, pitched over 200 innings. Uh, there was 1980, uh, he incurred a little bit of injury. 81 was the strike season. But in 82, he had only pitched 111 innings due to injury. So, if nothing else, Tom Seaver proved himself healthy and effective. And if anything, uh, made a strong case for himself as to why he should have been protected. Protected, but then again, we have to deal with Frank Cashin's position, what he was doing, and what his vision was. Well said. Um, I'll leave it with this. I heard uh, a little anecdote where the Red Sox are about to win the World Series. Tom Seaver is injured and just on the uh, in the dugout, and he looks over to uh, Buddy Harrelson who is, I believe at that time, coaching third base. And uh, he says, call me. He says, call me. And the rest is history, of course. Tom Seaver did not pitch against the Mets in that World Series, and maybe the Red Sox would have won. Wouldn't those have been some apples? Anyway, you have been listening to a Metsian podcast. Thank you so much for doing so. Uh, without further ado, we have reached our last word, and uh, I will go to Rich Farago up in Connecticut first with our Metsian last word. Well, I'm going to say the word is February, and the reason I say that is people always say how oh, February is the worst month of the year. Well, I've never, ever felt that way because February is the beginning of spring training, and February is just about here on Saturday, February 1st. And when you hit February 1st, it's baseball season, brother. I mean, pitchers and catchers report, even back when Mike and I were kids, by, you know, late February, it would be pitchers and catchers. Now it's earlier. Um, but February is beginning of baseball season. And I've always believed that once the calendar turns to that month, it's time. You know, you have the Super Bowl used to be in January. Now it's the first couple of days of February. But you get that out of the way, and it's just you're on the extreme downhill slide into baseball season. And I, for one, can't wait. So that's my last word. February means it's here. February is my birthday, and usually within a matter of a week, there's spring training. How could I hate February? Mike. Likewise, February is my birthday as well. Uh, let's go Mets, as Rich says. Spring training is right around the corner. Uh, for me, there's still the Caribbean series, <laughs> early February. So baseball is in the air, and uh, I have nothing more. It's a quiet time. Calm before the storm, perhaps. Uh, otherwise, on a more serious note, my heart goes out to the Bryant, uh, Kobe Bryant family. That is for sure. Um, my last word is almost there. We've had two managerial uh, uh, press conferences, and um, regardless of, of whether or not it works out, right now it's kind of the, uh, the calm before the baseball storm. Uh, who knows what spring training could provide in terms of clarity with some of these roster decisions. Uh, but we are uh, in the, the, the home stretch. We're on the last leg of this, uh, uh, this baseball winter creep, uh, creep up, uh, if you will, and um, can't wait for baseball to arrive, even if the Wilpons are still the ones in charge. Other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? And without further ado, 
I'll end a Metsian podcast on that note. Thank you guys, all you listeners, for joining us tonight. We're so thankful you tune in every week, week in, week out. Rich, what's the only way that we can take out a Metsian podcast? Let me think about that for a minute. Um, well, I think it would be let's go Mets. Let's go Mets. Let's go, Let's go everybody. Take care. We'll catch you next week. Bye. This is the smell of a warm three-day-old egg salad sandwich in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy. Blech. And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag with new Fabuloso lemon scent. Hefty, hefty, hefty. <sighs> smell the difference? When life gives you stinky, get Hefty Ultra Strong with new Fabuloso Lemon Scent. It smells like clean, freshly picked lemons. So no matter what's inside your trash, you can stop the stink and smell the lemon. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.